You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, if you know me at all, you know that I am a, a little bit of a pyro. I love to play with fire. I love to uh, build fires. I love fire. Uh, I was banned in my last church from using candles or anything that had anything to do with fire because in my first few months there, I I caught the basement carpet on fire. Uh, And that was actually right after they had just renovated the basement because a couple months before I'd gotten there, the basement caught on fire and almost burned down the entire church. And then I show up and I catch it on fire again. But so they banned me from using like anything that had anything to do with fire. Um, I, I love fire. Um, anyway, I, I grew my love for fire during my college days in Arkansas. I mean, there's basically like no rules in Arkansas, so it's a good place to develop a habit like this. Um, I, was, I was responsible for, at least partially responsible for, uh, on at least two occasions, accidentally catching my dorm on fire. Um, I also accidentally caught the carpet of my college pastor's office in college on fire. Um, one of the most awesome and terrifying moments of my life uh, was in college, and it involved fire. Uh, uh, I, I discovered the effect that cotton balls have on candles when a candle's lit. I don't know if you've ever done this before. I'm sure many of you will do this after I tell you this. Uh, but if you take cotton balls and you, and you, you take a, it can be a, in fact, I encourage it, especially the first time, for it to be a very small candle. Uh, and you take cotton balls and you just kind of start dropping it onto the lit candle. What happens is the cotton ball it, it does two things. I mean, one, the fire catches the cotton ball, but then the cotton ball starts to soak up the wax. So it becomes like this super mega wick and, uh, and it just makes the flame bigger. And then anyways, I discovered this. And so I went up to my college pastor's office, which you need to kind of get this picture. So my college pastor's office um, was on campus in the student union building. And it had a balcony that overlooked a very small part of campus uh, on the second floor. And so I go into the office and I was like, dude, Kevin, his name's Kevin. I was like, dude, Kevin, you got to check this out. I've I've discovered this cool thing. Find me a candle. And so he had this tiny little candle he took off his assistant's desk. And I said, I need some cotton balls. And so uh, I raided. They had this closet. I figured they would have cotton balls in there because it had a bunch of random stuff. So I go in there and grab some cotton balls out. And I was like, dude, watch. And he goes, hold up. Let's go out to the balcony. This looks dangerous. And so we go out to the balcony. And so now we're on the second floor. Uh, Just a picture of this balcony. So like, let's just pretend like this is the edge of the balcony. Okay. It creates a Perfect little balcony here. And then you have this glass sliding door that goes into his office. The the opening of the door is right here. So we're now out on the balcony, but we come to this side of it. So the door's over there, and there's glass wall here. And uh, we take this candle, and we set it on the ground. We light it. And again, it's a very small candle. And and so I open the cotton balls, and I just start dropping cotton balls on it. And it was the coolest thing because the flame just immediately gets bigger. And he's like, oh, dude, that's cool. So he takes some cotton balls, and he throws it on it. And we're just like fascinated by the fire, so we're not even paying attention to anything else or really what we're doing and about to do. And so we just start taking balls, cotton balls and just throwing them on the fire. And eventually we just take the bag of cotton balls and just dump it out onto the fire. And what happens is it, it creates this massive flame. These cotton balls are, are soaking up the wax, so they're not burning out. They're just like burning and, and burning more and more. And so this flame is growing and growing. And as the, as the candle melts, the wax begins to spread this way. And not really paying attention to what we're doing to ourselves, we have created a wall of fire uh, between us and our escape route. 
And, and so we're still like throwing cotton balls and just laughing and stuff. And then all of a sudden we look at each other and we're like feeling the heat of the flames and we're like, oh, what are we going to do? You know? And I can't imagine people walking by outside. They see these flames coming up on the balcony, their college pastor and some idiot student up there like laughing and, and, and then all of a sudden freaking out because we're in the middle of this fire. We're about to burn down the student union. So we start yelling for Martha, which was his assistant. And she it's the most innocent human ever. She comes running in. She's like, oh, Lord. And so she goes and grabs uh, this cup of water and just throws it on the fire, then goes and fills it up again, throws it on the fire. And thank the Lord, <clears throat> uh, Martha and those cups of water saved our lives. Uh, for the longest time, there was like this wax stain, and it may still be there in the balcony. Uh, but those cotton balls were like this mega fuel for that litty bit, litty biddle, <laughs> little bitty candle. Now, here's why I share this story. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. Now, have you ever, um, have you ever been around like a bonfire, like been out camping maybe, or just been out hanging out around a fire, maybe in somebody's backyard, and you get the fire going and somebody has lighter fluid? What, what happens when you spray the lighter, lighter fluid on the fire? Like, like me and my frat brothers, we would, we would go out in college Again, Arkansas, there's like no rules there, so you can do whatever you want. And uh, we'd be out in the woods, and we would have, like, very often we would go out to the woods, build a bonfire, and just, like, kick it. And as the night went on, the fire got smaller, and so it was no longer like this big bonfire, and we're just hanging around this fire. We got our camping chairs there, and we're just kicking it, talking. Every once in a while, though, some guys would get up and be standing around the fire, especially when it's cold out, you know? You stand closer to the fire. But somebody would always kind of sneak over and grab the can of lighter fluid, and once, like, two or three or four or five guys got around the fire, they would just like spray the fire real quick with the lighter fluid, and what would happen? It just blows up in your face, and so it's like singes eyebrows and stuff like that, and everybody starts laughing and saying, ha ha, you know, anyways, dumb frat guys. But yeah, if you throw lighter fluid on the fire, it, it causes the fire to explode. And listen to me, prayer has the same effect on the church. Actually, here's a better example of how this works. You ever built a fire before? Like if you build a fire, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that go into building a fire, building a good fire, but I mean, just a basic fire, you need to start off with some like tinder or some little pieces of paper or some small twigs or some leaves, you know, stuff that'll catch fire easily. And then as the fire catches, then you add bigger things and bigger things and bigger things and bigger things, and then it becomes a bigger fire, however big you want it to be. But when you first start that fire, you, you, you know, you're building the little tiny stuff. And then, you know, unless you're like this caveman and you use sticks to start the, the flame, you know, you got a lighter in your pocket or something and you, and you stick that lighter up on, you know, whatever it is you're trying to catch, the tinder. And, and at first it really doesn't catch. So what do you have to do to get that fire to, to catch, pick up steam and actually like catch everything else on fire? Yes, you got to get down, you know, really on your knees close to the fire and you got to begin either, you know, fan it or you got to blow on that fire persistently until eventually what happens? What happens? Yeah, it catches fire, and then, and then you can start throwing other bigger sticks on there, and it, and it, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And in fact, a fire can almost be dead. It can almost be dead, but, but if you get down on your knees and you, and you fan it or you blow on the smoldering coals, the fire will reignite. Now, again, I want you to get this picture because prayer has the exact same effect on the church. A church, doesn't, a church that doesn't pray is at best a smoldering fire. It might not be dead yet, but it will be soon. But here's what else you have to see. Prayer doesn't just affect dying churches. Prayer affects healthy churches. It doesn't take much for a healthy fire to 
all of a sudden grow into an uncontrollable wildfire. So again, in college, uh, I, I went out one time to the state park. We had a state park close by, Lake DeGray. Um, and I went to Lake DeGray. It's a state park. And I, I was going to go out there to study. And so I go find me a picnic table. I'm all by myself, take some books to study. And uh, it didn't take long for me to get distracted. Uh, I had my hands in my pockets at one point, and I, I found a lighter I had in my pockets. I went through this phase in college where I carried a lighter around all the time. Um, and the reason for that was mainly because I also car- carried fireworks around with me all the time. Because uh, you never know when a good time is to, you know, light somebody up with some fireworks. And again, in Arkansas, there's like no rules, so you can do whatever you want. And so I, I, I found this lighter in my pocket. And uh, on, this, on this picnic table, it was, there's trees all around, so little twigs had fallen on the picnic table. So I'm studying, then I find this lighter in my pocket, and so now I get distracted by the twigs and the lighter, and I start lighting these little twigs on fire. And then I'm like, oh, cool, I'll just build a little small fire right here. And so on the picnic table, I take some twigs and kind of make a little teepee out of it, you know, and stick some leaves up under it and light it on fire. And I'm just kind of looking at it because I'm just fascinated by fire. And I kind of forget, one, that I was supposed to be studying, two, that I've built this fire on a picnic table, three, that I'm in a state park. Uh, and, and so I'm like looking at this fire and thinking, my mind immediately thinks when I see fire, let's make it bigger. So I start grabbing more twigs and that are all on the table. I clean off the table of twigs. Now they're on the middle burning in this fire. And so I get up and go grab more sticks and start throwing it on there. And the fire's like actually starting to, you know, pick up some steam and get to be a cool fire. Well, then I get up again and I go, and I'm starting to grab like, you know, sticks now. And so I leave and I go grab some sticks. I, and and as, I, as I leave, this gust of wind comes through and, uh, and it kind of just blows through this part of, you know, where I was. And I turn and look and the wind had blown on the fire just perfectly that now, kind of like when you blow on the fire, it just ignites this fire. And I turn and look and I have like these two foot flames coming off of this picnic table. And so at this point, I'm like, oh, shoot. So my first reaction was to look and make sure nobody else around saw this, that I had built a fire on top of this picnic table. Uh, mind you that I have no idea how long it's going to be before the picnic table catches on fire. But when I turned to look to see if anybody else, is, anybody else is seeing this, I turned this way and coming down the road just so happens to be one of the park rangers. So I start freaking out. And thankfully, there's this trash can right here. I pull the steel lid off the trash can. I throw it on the fire to smother the fire. I sit down, pull my books out, and act like nothing is going on. The park ranger drives up. Of course, he gets out of his truck, and he's like, hey, man, everything going okay? And I'm sitting here. I got my books in front of me, sweating now because I'm freaking out. And uh, there's this trash can lid and smoke just, like, billowing out (laughs) from the trash can lid. And he walks up, and he goes, everything okay? And I was like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Just just hanging out. And... uh, and he kind of laughs, which thankfully he was, you know, I guess in a good mood. He kind of laughs and he goes, okay. And he starts to walk away. And then he comes back and goes, hey, by the way, it's not a good idea to build a fire on a picnic table. <laughs> and uh, he goes and gets back in his truck. And... But with as windy as it was, with as windy as it was, if I had not had that trash can lid there to smother the flames, I would probably be in jail right now for burning down half of Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Now, I share that story because of this. God doesn't want his church to be a smoldering fire. God doesn't want his church to even be a bonfire. God wants his church to be an uncontrollable wildfire. In Luke 12, 49, Jesus says this. He says, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze. God doesn't want his church to be contained within these brick walls. God wants his church to be so contagiously set ablaze that Anywhere and everywhere the people of his church go, all these new fires begin to pop up. But in order for that to be, 
in order for that to happen, there has to be something fueling the fire. And listen to me, prayer is to the church as fuel is to fire. So somehow this week I landed in Luke chapter 18 just uh, when, I was, when I was studying. Uh, flip there for a second. Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 1. And I want to read this to you. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 8 uh, here in a second. And I want to explain what's happening here and, and just show you what Jesus says. Luke 18, verse 1. It says this, and he, he being Jesus, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, so now he's kind of telling this this parable sort of story. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now this is was, I mean, just, I want you to get this picture here. This was an obnoxious lady. Like this is one of those people that could talk, you know what I'm saying? Not just like they had the ability to talk, but I'm saying like they could talk, all caps, talk. Like this is one of those people when you see them walking down the hallway, you're like, oh, and then you just kind of run the other way. Um, or if you get cornered in, you know, in a space where you just couldn't see him coming, then you make up some ridiculous excuse like, oh, I'm about to you know, poo my pants. i got to go. And then uh, as soon as you get around the corner, you just walk off and do something else. This is the type of woman that we're talking about here. This is the type of person that we're talking about here. This lady was persistent. She was not going to let this thing go that she was trying to get this guy's attention with, the judge's attention with. And so the judge, as we see in the story that Jesus tells, finally gave her what she was asking him for just so that she would leave him alone. Now you read on, verse 6, it says, And the Lord said, so now he's going to kind of uh, give the point of this fake story that he made up. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So in what Jesus says here, he gives three questions, like rhetorical questions, very serious questions. The first two questions are, are kind of awesome, and they're encouraging. When you read them, you see what they say, the promises to us. The third question is a straight-up punch to the gut. But I want to look at the first two questions. The first thing he says is, here what the unrighteous judge says. So he's like, pay attention to what the unrighteous judge just did in that story. Like he wasn't listening, wasn't listening, wasn't listening. Finally, he got so annoyed, he's like, here, take it. Have what you want. And then he says, and will not, give, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? In other words, what he's saying is how much more will your God who is righteous give justice to his elect children who cry out to him day and night? So the judge wasn't righteous. But God is. That's what he's saying. And the judge did not care about that woman, but God does care about his elect. He does care about his children. What I want you to see is the qualifier in there. Notice the qualifier. He says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him, what? What? Day and night. Let me ask you this. When is the last time that you pursued God that persistently in prayer? Better question, when is the last time that we together pursued God that persistently in prayer? 
I remember the very first time ever in my life that I began to pursue God persistently like this in prayer. And it was actually my first mission trip ever, which was actually Beach Reach. I've shared that with you before. Uh, Many of you have been now to Panama City Beach, Florida for Beach Reach. Some of you haven't, but you're coming with us in the spring. My first mission trip ever was Beach Reach. And I had never in my life prayed like that before. At Beach Reach, there's this prayer room that goes on for six hours uh, during ministry time at night. And we take different shifts in there. And our shifts are three hours apiece. I'd never prayed for three hours straight before in my life. And, and I'd never prayed so specifically for three hours before in my life. And then I've told you the story uh, of how one of the nights of my first mission trip down there, I was just so frustrated with some stuff that I went out to the beach and I just prayed all night long. I, that wasn't the plan, but that's what ended up happening. Like the sun came up and it was like, okay, it's time to stop doing this. Prayed all night long. And, and let me just tell you something. I had never, ever, ever, ever experienced God that way. And, and uh, this, uh, this, this morning, as I was kind of thinking about this, I, I went and I had to d- dig through some boxes, but I found my journal from back then when I was in college. And, um, and I, I flipped through because I remember I was, this was right about the time that I started sort of journaling. And, um, which, you know, just, just a little side note here. Journaling is a really good thing, okay? It's not just something that girls do, fellas. Uh, this is not a diary, okay? Um, dear diary. So today, uh, no, that's not how this works. Um, but journaling is great for two reasons. One is it's great to, as you study the Bible, to have a pen and paper with you um, because you're able to really write down and think out your thoughts better as you write. And then also, as you put it down on paper, you don't forget it. Or if you do forget it, you can come back and be reminded of it. Uh, another reason it's really good to journal is because you can write down significant things that happen or where you're at, you know, at this point in your life. And so one of the things that I do is I'll frequently, uh, now my journal's on my computer. It's way easier to search that way, and I don't have, like, stacks of notebooks that I have to lug around everywhere. Um, but I will often go back and just click, you know, if, if today is, what's today, January what? Thanks, January 27th. So, like, oftentimes I'll go back to January 27th last year, two years ago, and just see what God was saying to me, where God had me, and where I've come since then. And it's very encouraging. It's challenging. Anyways, that's a good reason to have a journal. So um, I was looking at my journal from that week at Beach Reach, and the very first night, uh, I'll read just a few things. So the very first night we get there, Saturday night, we go down, we prayer walk the strip. That hasn't changed in the last, this is 11 years ago. Uh, that hasn't changed in the last 11 years. Um, and, and this is what it said. So Kristen was praying tonight. Kristen was a girl that I was paired up with that night. Kristen was praying tonight as we walked the, the strip for these guys carrying a huge container of beer. She prayed saying to God that they don't need that beer. A few seconds later, they dropped it, and the beer went all over the ground. Um, this is the first time I'd seen a prayer literally prayed and then answered immediately in front of my eyes. What happened was we saw these dudes walking, and, uh, and I had never really prayer walked before, so I wasn't even really praying. I was just kind of more observing, and I was a little bit freaked out by it. And, uh, and I'd also never prayed specifically before. Like, you know what I'm talking about. We all pray, oh, I pray for good health, and I uh, pray for safety, and I uh, pray for... Th- we, we don't pray for things that are measurable. Like, if God actually answered it, we'd be like, oh, crud, God just actually answered that prayer. I'd never prayed like that before. And so she starts praying. She sees these dudes carrying this massive container of beer. You can see the beer, like, swishing around in it. And she just starts praying out loud. She's like, God, and they're off in the distance. One, like, up in their face, like, God, you know. But she's praying... And they're off in the distance, she, and she, goes, she just goes, God, they don't need that beer. I pray that you wouldn't let them have that beer tonight, something like that. And I'm not telling you, I'm not kidding. Like two seconds later, the dude carrying the beer stubs his toe and trips, and the container falls and just spills all over the street. And I was like, oh, heck no, you know. <laughs> and so I started thinking, okay, what can I pray for, you know. So that, that, was the, 
that was the very first night. Um, two nights later, uh, last night we walked the streets, and that sounds really scandalous. Uh, we were on a street team, and so we were walking the streets, and we prayed for three straight hours. So at this point, we're not even in the prayer room, but now we're prayer walking as we're out on the street team, um, trying to meet these different spring breakers and sharing the gospel with them. And, and so I, I, it says, uh, last night we walked the streets and prayed for three straight hours. I never prayed like that before, and it was awesome. Uh, it's so funny to also to see how you write when you're like, I don't know, I guess I was maybe 20 then. Uh, I never prayed like that before, and it was awesome, exclamation point. While street team was out, so many prayers were answered. Um, Rachel and I, the girl that I was paired up with that night, handed out all the flyers we had and still had about two hours left in our shift. So we prayed that God would lead us to someone that was open to talk to, um, alluding there to talk, talking about Jesus. Within five minutes, we were talking to two guys, parentheses, probably more like within two or three minutes. Uh, for the rest of our shift, we were pretty much always in some sort of conversation with somebody. Now, a few lines later, it says, Lord, I'm so tired, all caps, and itchy. Um, I, had, I had poison ivy all over my body on this trip. In fact, on the way down, they had this, the whole team had to stop in Hattiesburg, take me to the ER, and give me some steroids because I got into poison ivy uh, while I was playing out in the woods in Arkansas. <laughs> so uh, probably building a fire. Uh. Uh, then a few nights later, uh, tonight, um, okay, so this was, I've shared a little bit of this story before, and this is the, leading into the night where I spent all night out on the beach praying, um, but I, I just wrote this. Tonight when we got back, I was real frustrated, so I went down to the beach and I prayed slash chewed out God in a respectful yet challenging way. I don't know what that means uh, or if that's possible, um, for about an hour. Um, one thing all 80-plus people here have been praying, which you know now there's like 600 students from around the country that come together and do this. Then it was like 80 people. One thing all 80-plus people here have been praying for all week is that God would save at least one soul and more. Nobody had become a Christian yet that week. I'm really getting frustrated because we can't say that, uh, that we know if that prayer has been answered. So I challenge God tonight to show us, beginning in the morning at breakfast, his power. I told him I won't be satisfied until at least one soul accepts Christ. And then I wrote in here, this was still, I'm writing this at probably about uh, 11, no, probably like 2 that morning. Um, and so, because we had all just gotten back. And so I, I said, I'm going to fast tomorrow, all day, except I might eat something so I can take my medicine. I was taking steroids for the poison ivy. But then in parentheses, I came back later and wrote, I ended up staying all night instead of fasting. Um, so then the next page, uh, the next day, it says in big letters, God is for real. I stayed up all night Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. The whole night I basically prayed to God that he would show Beach Reach 2004 salvation. I was challenging him out of frustration. It wasn't until last night, Wednesday before worship, that I realized that God was really the one challenging me. He challenged me to find my strength and rest in him. Because physically and emotionally I was running on empty. And I cannot tell you how awesome the past 30 hours or so have been. And I'm not going to read on from there. But it was crazy what began to happen uh, the 30 hours after that, uh, I got to lead a dude to Christ, and then it was like all of a sudden these people were just like coming to Christ, and it was incredible to see God like right before your sinking eyes answer these prayers. Surely God answers the persistent prayers of his children. That's what he's saying here, but he doesn't just say that. You look at the, the next thing he says, the next question he asks, Will he delay long over them? Remember this woman had to keep coming back to the unrighteous judge, begging, begging, begging. It took a long time. But what does he say? He says, how much faster will he answer our prayers? Listen to me. God isn't slow to answer our prayers. We just think he is because I don't think we really know how to pray. 
And then we get to that punch you in the gut question that he asks in verse, uh, whatever verse it is, 8. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Listen to me, Jesus, I mean, understanding that he's talking about prayer here, Jesus could have very easily said, and it would have made sense for him to say, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find people praying on earth? But he doesn't. Why does he not do that? Think about this. Instead, he says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? And the reason for that, in in choosing not to say, will he find people praying on earth, what Jesus basically says is, prayer is a measurement of our faith. A prayerless person is a faithless person. How are you doing? A prayerless church is a faithless church. How are we doing? Now, some of you are thinking, okay, now why the heck is he talking about Luke 18 when we're supposed to be studying Exodus? Some of you are thinking, bro, you're in the wrong zip code right now. Well, let me, let me just see if you can figure out why. So hold your finger in Luke 18 and flip back over to Exodus chapter 2. Last week we saw Exodus 2, verse 23, and it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Exodus 3, verse 7, the other verse we looked at last week, says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their what? Their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Now flip back to Luke 18, verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Let me ask you this. Have you ever realized how often the Bible says, cry out to God? Have you ever realized how often the Bible refers to prayer as crying out to God or calling out to God or lifting up your voice to God? I'd never thought about this until this summer. I was, um, I was reading through this book called Vertical Church written by a, a pastor up north named James McDonald. And in this book, he poses this question. He says, have you ever thought about how often God or the Bible, God through the Bible tells us to cry out to him, call out to him, lift up our voice to him? He said, James McDonald, he's writing this now. And he says, I didn't realize that until he read another guy's book, this this guy named Bill uh, Gothard, his book, uh, The Power of Crying Out. He said, I didn't realize it until this guy pointed it out. He's like, how have we not seen this? The whole time we're studying the Bible that God all the time is telling us to cry out to him and all the time is comparing prayer or referring to prayer as crying out, calling out, lifting up your voice. Over and over the Bible says this, and and here's the point that I'm getting at. I'm not sure we really understand how to pray. Somehow, prayer has been redefined for us as this mindless thing that we do before we eat. Thoughtless words before we eat a meal. Somehow prayer has been redefined for us as this superstitious thing that we do before we go to bed. Somehow prayer has been redefined for us as this showy thing, this this show we put on before other people's when we're in a Bible study and that Bible study circle praying it up at the end. Try to show off and use cool words like bestow that nobody ever says in their life except when they're praying and trying to show off. Prayer has been redefined as this inaudible quietly to ourselves sort of thing that we do in all the other situations where either we're in a big group like we just were earlier and I told y'all to pray quietly and audibly to yourselves 
or when you're at home by yourself, you just pray inaudibly, quietly in your brain. But when you look at what the Bible says about prayer, you have to question whether or not that's really prayer at all. Because again, look at Exodus 2, 23. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Chapter 3, verse 7, again, it says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. Luke 18, verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? You should do a study on how often the Bible tells us to call out to the Lord I'm serious. Like Google this, blueletterbible.com this. You should do a study on how often the Bible says that we should call out to the Lord, cry out to the Lord, or lift up our voices to the Lord. And then after you do that study, you should do another study. And in this study, you should, you should study how often the Bible tells us to whisper to God. You should do a study on how often the Bible tells us to inaudibly or pray secretly inaudibly in our minds or our hearts to him. Now listen, does God know your thoughts? Yes, absolutely. I've got scripture to back that up. Does God hear your prayers when you pray quietly in your heart and your mind to him? Yes, also have scripture to back that up. But how does he want you to pray? How does the Bible Tell us to pray. Let me ask you this. Why do you think the Bible says over and over and describes prayer over and over as crying out? In fact, Exodus 2.23 where it says they cried out for rescue. The first time it says cried out is a different word. The second time it says cried out for rescue. Um, in, in, in Hebrew, that word used in other contexts was sometimes translated as to scream. So why do you think the Bible so often describes prayer as crying out? Try to think of this in the most unspiritual way as possible. Like, why do people cry out? Um, one, of, one of my, like, hobbies is to sneak up on people and scare them. And then, uh, and of course, I videotape it, and then I post it on Instagram or Twitter um, or, like, everything. And uh, so yesterday, I, I had a meeting. I was running a little bit late. My lunch meeting went long. Um, and uh, so I was running, like, five, ten minutes late maybe like 15 minutes late for this meeting uh, with Matt Morkecho. He's one of uh, our interns. And then Savannah Chapman, she's one of our student leaders. And, and I was meeting them in, in the office down here. And so uh, I, I was showing up late, late. The door to the office was open. I could hear them in there sitting at the computers talking. And so I jumped around the door and was just like, blah! And it was awesome because they both screamed like really loud. In fact, Matt screamed louder than Savannah. And that's saying something. Um, but I didn't film it. So I'm like really mad at myself for not filming it. Um, but, but thinking about that situation, why do people cry out? You cry out because you're afraid. You know, sometimes you cry out because you're hurt or you're in pain. You cry out when you realize that you're in imminent danger. You cry out when your need is urgent. Something else to think about is crying out, it's instinctive. It's not like you stop and go, oh, I'm going to cry out right now. Bah! It's reactive. You just do it. And this is why the Bible so often describes prayer this way. Crying out is something that you do in desperation. And I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure there really is such a thing as non-desperate prayer. Crying out is something that, that is very humble. It's a very humble action. In other words, it shows weakness. It shows fear. And true prayer has to admit those things. 
crying out. It's instinctive. Man, if you really truly have faith in God and you see him for who he is and see yourself for who you are, you're going to instinctively call out, cry out to him. But we don't cry out because we're not afraid. We don't cry out because we don't feel like we're in danger. We don't cry out because we don't feel urgently in need. We don't cry out because we just assume that we're entitled to this eternal life that Jesus offers to us. We don't cry out because we've lost all perspective on how disgusting and how dangerous and how deadly our sin is. And listen to this. We've lost that perspective on our sin because we've traded in our God who made us in his image for a God that we've made in our own image. We don't cry out because we live in such abundance. We have so much. We have all these different safety nets, quote unquote, protecting us. The bottom line, though, is this. In Exodus chapter 2, The Israelites, they cried out. We saw that last week. We're seeing that again this week. In Exodus 2, the Israelites cried out, and the result was this. Over one million people were set free and delivered from slavery. Now, here's my question. What might happen to our campuses that have about 60,000 college students on them here in Denton. What might happen on those campuses if we began to cry out to God on their behalf? What might happen in our city, in our country, in our world if we, the people in this room, began to cry out to God on behalf of this city, country, and world. Acts 4.31 says, After they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken. The key word in that text is after. After they prayed. That's when the meeting place where they were was shaken. Maybe God hasn't shaken things up in a while because God's people haven't gotten on their knees and earnestly asked him to do so in a while. In an article that was sent to me this week, a very timely article, especially considering, well, only considering what we're talking about tonight. Uh, This article, I I read this, it, it says this. It's been over 100 years since the last great move of God occurred in our nation. It was in 1857 and 1858 that a movement of prayer led to one million people becoming Christ followers from a population of only 30 million in our nation. So that's like one out of every 30 people. This movement of prayer was begun in New York City by a layperson named Jeremiah Lamphere. Layperson meaning this wasn't a pastor. This dude didn't have seminary degree, didn't have reverend before his name. This is just a regular, well, pastors are just regular fools too, but this was just a normal dude, okay? This movement of prayer was begun in New York City by a layperson named Jeremiah Lamphere. After failing to minister effectively to the immigrants in his church's neighborhood, Lamphere was moved to pray. At noon on September 23, 1857, in the Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street, New York City, Jeremiah Lamphere knelt alone. Before 1 p.m., six men joined him. Within a month, 100 men joined him daily. 
Soon, thousands of men began to pray each day at noon around New York City. This resulted in one million Americans coming to Christ within a two-year span, as well as another one million converted to Christ in Great Britain and Ireland. The church was revived. Now, let me tell you why the American church hasn't seen this kind of movement or revival in the past 100 years, which put that in perspective. We haven't seen in the American church this kind of revival in our lifetime And let me tell you why we haven't seen this kind of movement of God in our lifetime. It's because when it comes to prayer, the American church, that's you, that's me, we have become silent. Crickets can be heard chirping in prayer rooms all across America. They're silent. They're silent because they're empty. They're silent because the people that would be filling them lack desperation. They're silent because the people that would be filling them lack that humble action, that willingness to admit that there's fear, that there's hurt, that there's pain, that there's need. They're silent because we have stopped crying out to God. And essentially all of Exodus, the entire book, is God's response to the people's cry in Exodus 2, 23. But I want to quickly show you what happens when we pray simply based off of what we see in Exodus chapter 3. In a way, Exodus 3, it paints a portrait of what a church on fire will look like. And what I mean by that is that it paints a portrait of what a church who is constantly being fueled by prayer will look like. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Exodus 3, 1 says this, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. What just happened? What's our boy Mo doing? What's he doing? Yeah, he's, he's just keeping the flock. Now, it doesn't describe what kind of flock. Flock of birds? Mm, probably not. Flock of sheep, flock of goats? Probably one of those two or both of those. Have you ever hung out with sheep before, goats? You, been, you ever been around sheep? Raise your hand if you've been around sheep. So I've been around sheep a few times. Last time I was around sheep was at our Christmas celebration. We had a couple sheep in the program up here, and we kept them out in this uh, courtyard over here. And so, of course, <laughs> while the celebration was going on, I may or may not have been out there trying to mess with the sheep. Uh, I love animals, so I you know, was out there hanging out with the sheep for a little bit. And uh, it was the lamest experience ever because these sheep, they're just standing out there, like staring off into space, doing absolutely nothing. And so I'm doing everything I can to get them just to like acknowledge my presence. So I'm like, you know, walking around, you know, kind of dancing and stuff, and they're not even looking. And so uh, finally I'm like standing there going, you know, bang at them. And I do this literally for like five, 10 minutes uh, until some people walked out and saw me do it, and I felt really awkward. But at one point, as I'm going, man, finally one of the sheep, he kind of turns his head and he goes, <laughs> like, bro, you making fun of me? And then he just goes back to staring off in space. <laughs> sheep are super boring. You ever hung out with goats before? Man, those things are loud and obnoxious and uh, they're nasty and they got attitudes. So Moses, he's keeping the flock. And, and where was he? It says the west side of the wilderness and then he came to Oreb, and he's by this mountain. Now, it calls it the mountain of God. Most scholars believe that it was not previously called the mountain of God. That's the name that it was given after Moses had this encounter with God at this mountain that is now called the mountain of God. So he's out in the desert, in this wilderness. There, yeah, there's a mountain there. Nothing like the Rockies, though. Obviously, because a bush is about to show up, there's a little bit of plants and shrubs. But again, it's the desert. There's nothing special about this. The point is... There was absolutely nothing special about what Moses was doing. But look at what happens. Verse 2. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. <clears throat> he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. I hate how it puts that. It's like saying, I will turn aside and now take a look at this bush that is burning yet is not burned. Uh, <laughs> that's how I read it. I, I, does your brain do that? My brain is weird. But I'm sure he's like, what the heck is going on? You know? And so he turns and he looks and it says, verse 4, I'm sorry. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, yeah, what's up? No, he says, here I am. Verse 5, then he said, this is God speaking now out of the bush. He says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, we'll dig into that later on in Exodus, what just happened there. But verse 6, it says, and he said, God said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Which, that's pretty freaky. You know, we just hear that as a Bible phrase, Bible terminology. But imagine if this bush starts talking to you and starts naming all your dad, your dad, your granddad, your great-granddad, your great-great-granddad. Like, that would freak me out. Moses is probably like, ooh, he just pooped his pants a little bit. Uh, and then it says, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Listen to this. God wants to meet you right in the middle of the ordinary. It doesn't have to be the perfect sunset and the perfect cup of coffee. God wants to meet you right in the middle of the ordinary. It doesn't have to be the perfect worship venue and the perfect stage design and the perfect worship band, which I think we've got all three. God wants to meet you right in the middle of the ordinary. So often we confuse aesthetics with God's presence. God can take an ordinary moment and turn it into an earth-shattering, trajectory-changing, life-altering event. We want God to show up. We want God to make his presence known. But most of the time, all we focus on is altering the aesthetics instead of just getting on our stinking knees and crying out to God. I'm, I'm really thankful for the guys who spent hours and really days. Some of them, I don't know if they're here tonight. There's some guys who spent hours and like multiple hours over multiple days building uh, these really cool looking letters because they, they make the stage look awesome. I think they look awesome. Don't they look awesome? They look really cool. Um, I'm really thankful for the guys that spent hours and days building these letters because it really does. It makes the stage look awesome. It makes this room look cool. But let me ask you this question. What might happen if there was a group of guys that spent hours and days on their knees before God crying out to him on behalf of this moment on Tuesday nights? What might that do? In a church that's on fire, God makes his presence known in the ordinary. In a church that's on fire, God makes his presence known in the ordinary. Okay, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them. Uh, we could read the rest, but essentially in verse 8 he says, I've come down uh, to deliver them. Here's the second thing. In a church that's on fire, not only does God make his presence known in the ordinary, but in a church that's on fire, God delivers people. We talked about this mostly last week, so we won't spend a lot of time here. But you need to understand this. There will, in a church that's on fire, there will be deliverance. 
There'll be deliverance from slavery and bondage to sin, guilt, shame, brokenness, disease, and that list could be really, really long. In a church that's on fire, God delivers people. Then you look at verse 10. So right after Jesus or God says, uh, I've come down to deliver them, in verse 10 he says, come, talking to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In a church that's on fire, God sends his people out. God, he carried out his mission then in the same way that he carries out his mission now. God sent Jesus down to deliver this planet, the people of this planet, from their sins. And then after he did that on the cross and raising from the dead, what did he tell everybody that believed in him to do? Go. Now get to work. I'm sending you out to complete this work. In a church that's on fire, God sends his people out. The church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13, that was a church that was on fire. Acts chapter 13 verse 1 says, Now they're in the church. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, and it lists a bunch of people. Uh, And then it says, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, which in that you can, it's implied that they're together, they're crying out to God, they're praying, they're worshiping, they're fasting. It says, then the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, so this group, they got on their knees before God, and God started sending people out. Now, this is evidence of a church on fire, but it's also something else. Not only is God sending people out, and what we're reading here in Acts 13, evidence of a church on fire, but it's also a warning to the church that wants to be on fire. The moment that you, the moment that we begin to cry out to God, that's when God's going to begin sending many of us out. So if you don't want to be sent out, If you don't want to go, if you like where you are, if you're comfortable where you are, if you don't want to change, if you don't want to leave, then don't start praying like this. Now, now in verse 12 through, or verse 11 through 12, we'll we'll deal with Moses' response next week and the type of people that God sends. But look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, okay, what's his name? What shall I say to them? In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, these words, the way that God names himself here, these words should sound familiar to you whether you've read Exodus before or not. Because in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we could probably preach a whole sermon on this. um, But in short, here's what God's saying. He's saying, I'm about to show you who I am. He says, you'll know me by what I do. Now, this, this is why it's so cool that later on, thousands of years later, Jesus shows up and says, hey, guess what? I am the I am. It's cool because after he says that, then what does he go do? He goes, dies and resurrects from the grave, setting, delivering people free from their slavery to sin, just like God, the first person to say, I am, did with the Israelites, setting them free from slavery out of Egypt. And so what he's doing, he's basically saying, hey, remember? Remember who I am? I'm the deliverer, and I'm back again. And you're going to know me now in the same way that you knew me thousands of years ago when I delivered Israel out of Egypt. 
So in a church that's on fire, the people don't just know about God, they experience God. And so I guess what I'm getting at with that is God says, I am, he says, I am the I am, or whatever he said, I'm getting all confused now in my mind. But what he's saying is, look, you're, you're not just going to know me in name, you're going to know me by watching what I do among you. So the church that is on fire doesn't just know about God, but they, but they experience God. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice. God's talking to Moses. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. You might underline that. He says, I, I know that he will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. In this moment, God reminds Moses that hearts will not change their position towards God unless compelled by a mighty hand. Thankfully, we worship a God who has a very mighty hand. And so even though God is calling Moses to be the one to go to Pharaoh and be his mouthpiece and communicate all this stuff, God was still the one who would have to change Pharaoh's heart. I mean, from this point on, Moses is constantly asking God to stretch out his hand. And so in a church that's on fire, the people don't stop praying. Our prayer should constantly be, Lord, stretch out your hand because we know that hearts won't change unless they're compelled by his mighty hand. And this right here is why churches who don't pray are foolish and definitely not on fire. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to fire. A guy named Ralph Herring, he said this, we can ill afford to neglect one weapon that Satan does not have in his arsenal and the one weapon that he fears the most, and that's prayer. William Cowper, he was a hymn writer back in the 1700s. He said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees in prayer. I don't know if you know what a boiler room is, but this building has a boiler room. Most buildings have a bo- I guess pretty much all building, buildings have a boiler room. Um, ships, at least old school ships, I guess new school ships have boiler rooms too. But boiler rooms are really important. Um, especially on a ship. You know, a boiler room, if, if, if a ship doesn't have a boiler room, that ship's not going to work. I mean, think about Titanic. Y'all saw that movie, right? Okay. So you think about Titanic, and, and there's, there's a scene at one point in Titanic where Leo and Kate are running through the ship, and they end up in the very bottom of the ship. And, and what do they see in the very bottom of the ship? There's these dudes that are all grimy from all the coal that they've been shoveling and throwing into the furnaces that were at the bottom of the ship. And what's interesting is, I think this is a very profound point in the movie, if it hadn't been for them running down to that part of the ship, they'd, they'd nev- nobody on that ship would have ever known that that part of the ship existed. Nobody would have ever known that those men were down there nonstop shoveling coal into these furnaces, dirty, sweaty, working like crazy to get that ship to move. Everything above was just peaceful. And, and the ship was like, Working until, of course, they hit the iceberg, and that screwed everything up. But, but prior to that, the, everything was perfect. But the only reason it was perfect up here is because down below in the boiler room, these men were working hard, doing the work that nobody else was. They weren't the butlers and the nice little you know, tuxedos serving everybody and, and, and up in front of everybody. No, they were unseen, unknown, working their tails off, and, and they're the whole reason that ship was moving. Every ship needs a boiler room. Every building needs a boiler room. Every church needs a boiler room. 
Prayer is to the church like fuel is to a fire. Prayer is what fuels the church. And if there aren't people like on the Titanic down below, constantly doing the work that nobody sees, constantly doing the work that isn't the easiest, nobody really wants to do, it's hard, it's sweaty, it's dirty, shoveling that coal into the, far, into the furnace, praying, feeding the fire, then that church is not going to function. And over this past week, God has convicted my heart greatly of this. I believe that God has done some incredible things in and through this ministry already, but I don't, I don't think he's anywhere close to wanting to stop. And, and remember what I said earlier, a church that doesn't pray, pray is at best a smoldering fire. It may not be dead yet, but it will be soon. And it just brings me back to the question, what about us? Are we praying? And I'll just be honest with you, I think there's an obvious answer to that question. And so there's a few challenges that come out of this message. One, same challenge as last week. You cry out, there's deliverance. Some of you need deliverance from sin and death, baggage, pain, brokenness, disease. You cry out to God, he will deliver you. That's the first application. The second application is this. We need to start praying. Together, we need to start crying out to God. This ministry, this church needs a boiler room. And so now we've got a boiler room. Um, Tuesday nights from 7 o'clock until 8 o'clock in this room right behind the stage. We're calling that the boiler room from now on. From 7 to 10, an hour for you to come. You can come at 7, you can come at 7.30. But I challenge you, come at 7, I dare you. And we're going to focus on praying. And it's not going to be, you know, hey, my legs hurt, you know, or I have a pimple, it hurts. Pray for that. Pray that God will heal it, you know, or pop it miraculously. We're not going to pray for that kind of stuff. We're going to pray for this moment on Tuesday nights. We're going to pray for specific people groups on campus. We're going to pray for specific people groups around the world. We're going to be the ones who are fueling that fire so that this is a church, that this is a ministry on fire. An uncontrollable fire. Because right now, I think, it's, I think it's easy to say that we're controlled within the bricks of these walls. And God doesn't want that. So that's the, that's the big thing that comes out of this. The other thing that comes out of this is tonight we have our sign-ups for our communities. And, uh, and, and I do want to just tell you, most of those fill up the first night of sign-up. So everybody should have gotten one of those sheets on the way in. And I challenge you to fill it out tonight. Don't, don't do it. Don't fill it out unless you're really going to like, want to be involved in one of these communities. But fill it out tonight, and then we'll, we're going to have some greeters at the back who will take those up from you. Um, and and uh, Yeah, but, but in our communities, one of the things that we're going to be focusing a whole lot more on now is, is praying within our communities. And, and that's where the prayers for, hey, you know, look, my, my grandmother's really sick is going to happen. Or I'm, I'm really struggling with some suicidal thoughts. Will you pray for me? And that's where those kind of prayers are really going to happen. We've got to become a ministry that prays because prayer is to the church like fuel is to a fire. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online 
at overflowdenton.org.